Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today you're going to hear part three in the series of God in the Frontier. In the first couple parts, I explored how Christianity had been fractured over the centuries. And in the second part, I talked a little bit about how Christianity interplayed with the Haudenosaunee of New York. And today, I'm really going to focus on the city of Rochester and its early development. As this is all part of a book, I suggest listening to the first two parts. However, I feel all the episodes could be pretty good standalone, so if you're okay with that, you can start here. Before we get into it, I just want to remind you that any donation that you'd like to give to help support me in my work, I will share a copy of whatever writing piece that you'd like. In this case, it would be God in the Frontier. My previous writing piece was called Forging of Humanity, and you could also get a copy of that as well. There's always some really nice pictures that I include in addition to the writing. Please feel free to also like, rate, and review this podcast in order to help get the word out. So with that, let's get into it. Please enjoy part three of God in the Frontier. Chapter 3, An Awakening in the Burned Over District, Part 1, The Dusk of the Enlightenment. So, in the first couple chapters, we talked a little bit about the various types of Christianity and the differences between Christians from Europe and even coming into the United States. And... We also looked at the Native Americans of New York, the Haudenosaunee, and how their own religious perspective was not really respected or treated equally to the Christian perspective. And it also gave us an independent or an objective insight into how Christians were coming across in language versus their actions. Now we're going to delve into, in the next few chapters, some of the most famous religious movements that came out of the Burned Over District. So, here we go. With the Seneca effectively pushed off nearly all of the land in western New York, and the completion of the Erie Canal finally at hand, settlers from the east swelled into the old Seneca lands to the profit of the Holland and Ogden land companies. Newcomers readily considered the land vacant, a theme that would be repeated as settlers pushed westward at the expense of different Native Americans. At the same time that this massive settling of Haudenosaunee land was a religious crusade that was sweeping over the young nation. The Second Great Awakening was a revival movement in the early 19th century, a second act 
in a trilogy of religious awakenings in the West between the 17th and 20th centuries, all of the Great Awakenings were almost entirely Protestant in their foundation, staying completely separate from the Catholic Church. The Second Great Awakening lay at odds with the Enlightenment, the ideals that laid the framework of the United States Constitution and was fading by the early 19th century. Concepts such as reason, liberties, tolerance, progress, constitutional government, and the separation of church and state were foundational pillars for Enlightenment idealism and are constantly referenced by historians as the defining influence of the Founding Fathers. But the Second Great Awakening gave the United States a second national identity, which would overlay on top of the Enlightenment ideals, by popular demand, a democratic revolution that is often downplayed by historians. The Second Great Awakening was bursting with emotional enthusiasm, romanticism, and was motivated by a strong belief that early Americans were living in a new millennial age of Christ. In this sense, Jemima Wilkinson, or the public universal friend, was a little bit ahead of her time in proselytizing in this manner. The importance of what living in a new millennial age means, and how it played as a motivating factor during the Second Great Awakening cannot be understated. It's a belief that there will be a golden age of peace and prosperity that will exist leading up to the final judgment, which coincidentally would also be at the end of the world as it is known. That the final judgment will come is a bedrock belief held by nearly all Christians, regardless of denomination. And, as Americans moved west into the so-called unoccupied lands before them, it was easy to see why so many would consider it a golden age. It was the proverbial new land of opportunity for Christian settlers. It was almost as if the land was opening up for them and the native people were merely a nuisance that got in the way. The concept of manifest destiny was a genuinely held belief of the time, and many of the new developments during the Second Great Awakening would be based upon this belief of living in the Millennial Age. Today, many Christians believe that they are still living in the new millennial age. Usually, it's discussed with a strong focus surrounding a biblical prophecy that claims Christ's return is entirely dependent upon Jewish control of the Israeli-Palestinian land. Lobbying groups like the AIPAC and Christians United for Israel receive hundreds of millions of dollars to support and promote Israel's religious goal of complete control over all Palestinian territory. Just as when Christians populated America at the expense of the Native Americans, Israel has aggressively pushed families off of their homes that had been there for generations with the same disregard. Many Protestant Americans support this removal effort as part of a divine necessity. Christian and Jewish people find common cause in this goal, 
with the underlying assumption that this prophecy in the Bible is both true and interpreted correctly. Televangelists like John Hagee are millionaires for promoting Christian support for Israel's actions, often referred to as Christian Zionism. And so rather than thinking about the many generations to come, Christian Zionists are happily, politely, and nicely actively funding a project which they hope will bring on a prophesized global destruction, fully believing it is God's will. This widespread belief is often downplayed despite the hundreds of millions of dollars that Christians provide annually to the cause. The Second Great Awakening brought religious identity to America that would undergird emotionally driven demonstrations of faith like Christian Zionism. The Second Great Awakening replaced the Enlightenment as America's primary identity, just like its unofficial motto of E Pluribus Unum, which means out of many one, was replaced by In God We Trust. Both changes signaling America's allegiance to blind faith over prescient reason. How problems between Judaism and Islam in the Middle East today connect to 19th century American religious movement may initially seem unrelated, but it is the beliefs born of this religious movement that would go on to create the American narrative of the Holy Lands funded by millions of dollars annually today. The followers of the Second Great Awakening rejected the rationalist belief of the Enlightenment and appealed to the spiritual and supernatural. It was a time to proselytize and improve the world in the ways of Christ so that many more could be saved when the final judgment was at hand. They junked the deist beliefs of the founders, where it was perceived that God did exist, but did not directly interfere in the lives of people, especially in the way of miracles. Thomas Paine, John Tyler, Benjamin Franklin, Thomas Jefferson, James Madison, and James Monroe were all deists that would have cautioned strongly against such a shift from Enlightenment principles, especially in a democracy. The Second Great Awakening affirmed that God did exist, he does interfere, and that it was socially permissible to become emotional about it. America's postpartum identity was going to be far more rooted in religion than reason moving forward. Chapter 3, Part 2, Leading a Movement You can't talk about the Second Great Awakening and the Burned Over District without talking about Charles Grandison Finney. Finney was a child of the upstate New York frontier, which in those early days lacked strong religious leadership. As a young man, Finney was largely skeptical of religion, and initially pursued a secular career in law. But in 1821, at the age of 29, while taking a walk in the woods and reflecting on his existence, Finney claims he was struck by the Holy Spirit and described that he felt waves of 
electricity and liquid love throughout the event. This experience in the wilderness changed him so profoundly that he never even returned to his law practice, but instead became an ardently passionate ordained Presbyterian minister. Finney's passionate and emotion-laden fervor set him apart from his other more conservative Calvinist peers, whose beliefs the Presbyterian ministers usually preached, which included things like Christian Zionism and the concept of predestination. Believers in predestination claim that only God decides who could be saved and that God's people are chosen before they are even born. Predestination meant that conversion to Christianity was completely out of the hands of the individual, and was only real if it was accompanied by being struck by the Holy Spirit, which would cause an overwhelming need to be saved by Christ from their sins. And it was by being touched with this Holy Spirit that Finney himself came to Christ, causing him to leave what would have otherwise seemed a lucrative career. But Finney rejected the concept of predestination, proclaiming that if a person willed themselves to believe in Christ, that they could succeed in becoming Christian, flying in the face of Calvinist tradition. Finney's brand of preaching fit more with a style that today would be recognized as evangelicalism, and he is credited with greatly influencing the evangelical movement ever since. Evangelicalism is a transdenominational orientation, which accepts a wide variety of Protestant denominations under its umbrella where it focuses primarily on bringing people to the Christian cause, recommitting those who feel they have fallen out with Christ, and spreading the word of Christ to others. This hybrid form of Christianity has united over 600 million people worldwide today. Finney's contribution to evangelicalism is often referenced in the history of the movement. The enthusiastic and emotional spirit of evangelicalism is preached today with the same passion that Charles Finney preached with it in the 19th century. Throughout the mid-1800s, Finney continually pushed the boundaries of what was acceptable by traditional conservative Calvinist standards for the sake of bringing people closer in their relationship with God. Finney worked to close the gap between the religious order and the masses, a parallel he shared with Martin Luther of the Reformation. But there were also potential consequences to bringing the message of God into the hands of the masses that any incumbent religious order would know about. The less control they have over religious rules and norms, the less meaningful the beliefs could become a sort of form of religious anarchy. Without context of biblical history and understanding historic and symbolic meaning, the Bible could theoretically be used to justify almost any sort of interpretation. 
The Roman Catholic Church of the 16th century and the Calvinist Protestants of the 19th century had already determined, rightly or otherwise, what proper authority on the knowledge of God looked like. Allowing these new movements to take hold meant both a loss of control and validity by the incumbent order. During the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century, the line that couldn't be crossed was having the Bible translated into the common languages. Literal as well as historical misrepresentations could be rife in any translation, and the church was able to legitimize or delegitimize any version of it. But the Protestant push for the translation of the Bible into a variety of languages and having them distributed everywhere brought countless people to experience the Word of God firsthand and see the sacred text once only understood by representatives of the church. During the Second Great Awakening, preachers like Finney wanted to take it a step further by fast-tracking the conversion process of Christianity, whether someone had a religious epiphany or not. Without having to wait for the Holy Spirit, anyone could just convert to Christianity right there on the spot, provided that they were sincere about the whole ordeal. But Martin Luther and Charles Finney also couldn't be more different. Luther would have strongly disapproved of Finney's emotional appeal, believing that Christ should be discussed with the most sober and solemn tones, a belief that Kelvin shared as well. But during the Second Great Awakening, preachers like Finney changed that way of thinking. Finney found the constraints of Presbyterianism too tight and became a Congregationalist instead. And yet, even within those ranks, there was a concern that his emotional appeal would lead to undue fanaticism, the same fear the Catholic Church had about Luther and the Protestants. Finney was a true controversial revolutionary for his time that traveled across the country bringing his firebrand style to any church that would welcome him. Finney preached in what is known as the revivalist style, which provoked emotional responses from both his audiences as well as more conservative preachers, albeit for different reasons. Often, a revival would take place in a tent or public area in the forests and mountains of frontier America, bringing together some people who would go weeks without seeing others. He would challenge his followers to stand up in front of everyone if they were true believers and call out those who did not stand as non-believers in front of the entire congregation. This forced people to make the binary choice of whether they were to be open and passionate believers or just another lost soul bound for the bowels of hell. Charles Finney appealed to frontier Americans in a way that they could connect. He spoke more plainly than typical Calvinist preachers to appeal to the austere citizens of the backcountry. Finney did not even shy away from uttering the word hell, which evoked powerful reactions and was typically avoided in the Calvinist circles. 
Finney further broke the norms by having mixed-sex audiences as events for women were segregated and separate from men usually. His inclusion of women and calls for an end to slavery was a precursor for gender and racial equality that would go on to define the western New York region. He adopted a measure from the Methodists called the Anxious Bench, which was placed in the front of the room for people who had urgent spiritual issues that needed to be addressed, which would often consist of a spectacular demonstration of a conversion to Christ. He would pray for people by name and immediately accept church membership for converts. Instead of addressing his audiences once a week, he would preach frequently, even multiple times in a day and multiple days in a row. Finney fueled a frenzy for God in a way traditional Calvinism often just couldn't. In a wilderness largely devoid of populated centers, Finney would arrive into a new place and serve as a curious, relatable attraction. Like a youth pastor connecting with teens, Finney would speak the common language of the frontier rather than the stilted, out-of-touch style of the old world. Finney's events felt both shocking and engaging, while Calvinism was only a reminder of an old European order that no longer needed to be adhered to after the Revolution. Finney's tactics were highly controversial among Christians, with some accusing him of being too bombastic or manipulative. But Finney and his supporters parried this by countering that his style was a way to prevent Christianity from becoming lukewarm or stale, a subtle dig at the Calvinists. Finney established himself as an icon of the Second Great Awakening during one of his revivals in Rochester, New York in 1830. At the time of Finney's arrival, Rochester was a frontier canal town known for its location on Lake Ontario, the waterfalls of the Genesee River, and the great aqueduct that spanned over the river like a Venetian canal. Hundreds of miles from the coastal cities of Boston or New York City, Rochester's identity was still in the process of being forged. The land of the Haudenosaunee attracted those looking for new and different opportunities than back east, as evidenced by post-revolutionary arrivals such as the Society of Universal Friends. What Christian institutions there were in Rochester had fallen to disagreement over the very differences that separated evangelical revivalists like Finney from the more conservative Calvinist Presbyterians like the type Finney grew up within. Finney was invited to Rochester by the evangelical camp and, after staying for months over the autumn and winter of 1830 and 1831, he definitively tipped the scales in favor of his passion-filled revivalist style in an unprecedented way. Rochester became a Christian mecca as people poured into the burgeoning city just to see Finney. Schools partook in prayer. Businesses closed to hear him speak, and it was claimed that he had caused the population to boom and the crime rate to drop simultaneously, allegedly for years after he had left. 
he gave a total of 98 sermons over the course of his stay. And between them, he was meeting with people individually to have discussions about their own personal salvation. Finney writes in his autobiography, anecdote after anecdote of respectable members of the community approaching him about their tortured souls and feverishly praying to God for salvation. Finney helped change the identity of America so that a strong personal and emotional relationship with God was popular in the upper classes of the frontier. In Finney's America, it was appropriate to shame non-Christians and to openly and emotionally celebrate Christ in non-traditional ways. But it was also appropriate to support the equality of women and an end to slavery. Having this break from the traditional Calvinist norm was not just a more unabashed celebration of Christ, it was a change in morals, a way of thinking, living, and feeling. The Rochester Revival of 1830 and 1831 went down in history as America's biggest revival. It helped set a tone for America that would follow the frontier as it moved westward, replacing the more conservative Calvinist beliefs of Europe. Finney called the area surrounding Rochester burnt over with all the Christian conversions that had happened during the Second Great Awakening and has since been referred to by historians as the Burned Over District. Leaders like Charles Grandison Finney and the Second Great Awakening were the drivers of the national conversation on religion in the early 19th century that has reverberated through time to this very day. In many ways, the Second Great Awakening was a revolution with no lesser impact than the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century. The new fractures in the Christian prism had begun. Chapter 3, Part 3, America's First Boomtown How Charles Finney was able to make such an impact in Rochester requires a closer look at what was going on in the city at the time of his visit. The book, A Shopkeeper's Millennium by Paul E. Johnson, does exactly that and has been used as a critical piece of historical research and an unsettled historical debate on the burned-over district. Johnson himself readily admits limitations in his own research, but he provides data and insight that gives depth and character to the discussion. And while he won't be the only place I cite my work from in this section, it will be the primary citation because he has done a lot of the work by actually going into archives in Rochester to get a lot of really important information. The cities that popped up after the completion of the Erie Canal in 1825 were the hottest cities in the nation at the time, and they grew at an unprecedented rate. And for a brief moment in time, Rochester was the fastest growing city in the country, making it America's first boomtown, where Johnson recounts that, quote, 
1826, an editor estimated that 120 persons left Rochester every day, while 130 more arrived to take their places. End quote. Most of these people were transient young men looking for work and to make a name for themselves. And if they couldn't find it in Rochester, they could move on along the canal to Buffalo, which was the gateway to the entire West. These early days of Western expansion are often overlooked for prairie homesteads and desert towns that occurred later on and farther west, but the transient young male population that came up through the canal, coupled with wilderness villages that were not fully prepared to receive such a population influx, began to create some tension. First and foremost was the rowdiness often associated with rootless young men. Rochester was not alone in having these problems. In the 1840s, canal towns like Syracuse and Utica were having meetings about what to do about the roughly 5,000 orphaned boys, many under 12 years old, who worked on the canal boats every year. These were known as canal boys, and they primarily worked in the summer along the canal under low labor standards that were characteristic for children in the 19th century. During the harsh winter when they were unemployed, the canal boys would huddle in the low-income districts in the canal towns and commit crimes up to and including murder for their survival. The canal boys followed the canal lifestyle, where transient young men rarely expected the law to solve a problem that they could solve for themselves. Seedy taverns popped up along the canals that were filled with fighting and prostitution. At the canal's height in Buffalo, it was claimed that there was a murder every day along Canal Street that was known as the wickedest street in the world. It was rumored that some bartenders would serve poisoned drinks to loot a traveler before dumping them into the murky canal. Sailors who docked at Buffalo from traversing west on the Great Lakes would swaggeringly tease canal workers by calling out, Canaller, canaller, you'll never grow rich, you'll die in the ditch. The ditch being, of course, the popular nickname of the canal, Clinton's Ditch. In 1847, the Buffalo Republic bemoaned the dangers of the canal. Quote, During the summer, the very worst class of people inhabiting this portion of the First Ward have been permitted to gather there in unusual numbers, publicly enacting the most disgusting scenes, rioting by day and reveling by night. If the canal could speak and its waters cast up the hidden bodies of those who have doubtless come to an untimely end, its tale of horror would startle the public mind, and those whose duty it is to look after the public peace of our city might feel and realize how great this has been of their omission of duty. End quote. The problems that came with the canal in Utica, Syracuse, and Buffalo were happening in Rochester, too. But Rochester was a different place before the canal opened up. After the Treaty of Canandaigua was signed, the most prominent people in and around the Genesee Valley were, of course, land speculators that moved to the area from the East Coast. The very man who would go on to invite Charles Finney to Rochester was a land speculator and a merchant by the name of Josiah Bissell. 
One of the most powerful land speculator families in the area was the Brown family, who originally traveled from the Presbyterian-based state of Massachusetts. The Browns had already successfully endeavored in land speculation before, by founding Rome, New York at the end of the 18th century, just east of Oneida Lake. By 1810, they had purchased land along the west bank of the Lower Genesee River, and several Browns had moved there to further expand their empire. But the Browns were not the only ones who saw the value in the large, slow-moving, muddy Genesee with its myriad waterfalls and proximity to Lake Ontario. At the same time that the Browns were buying up their portion of the Genesee Valley, Colonel Nathaniel Rochester was traveling up the Susquehanna at the head of a caravan of wagons, carriages, and slaves from Maryland, where he was a practicing Episcopalian. Episcopalians remained heavily traditional in their practices, aligning closely to the Anglican and Catholic Church while still remaining Protestant. Rochester was a product of the American South and had served in the Revolution for the North Carolina militia before moving to Maryland for 30 years. While there, he ultimately got into the land speculation business and committed to his purchase in the Genesee Valley. In order to best manage his extensive land holdings all around the Genesee region, he knew that he needed to move there himself. The Rochester and Brown families found themselves at the forefront of rural frontier politics that rubbed uncomfortably against each other, certainly not helped by both families coming from two very different American cultures. Both families made connections with opposing political forces in the young state, with Rochester aligning closely with the powerful New York State politician and future president Martin Van Buren and his close-knit Bucktail Republican coalition. The Bucktail Republicans stood against the Brown-aligned policies of the newly elected New York governor DeWitt Clinton, the man who would ultimately garner the support for funding to build the Erie Canal. In 1811, the year after Rochester moved to New York, Rochesterville, as it was called at the time, had a population of about 15 people, but likely hundreds more in the very nearby area. By 1815, the Browns had invested nearly $4,000, a large sum of money at the time, into a spillway which would divert water from the high falls along the river called Brown's Race. This water was used by the growing mills in the area, which would ultimately make Rochester the flower capital of the world, giving it its nickname of the Flower City. Between 1818 and 1828, Rochester went from producing 26,000 barrels of flour to over 200,000 barrels of flour, and it only accelerated from there. By 1821, Nathaniel Rochester used his Bucktail connections to grant him the county seat with land he donated to the state, outmaneuvering the Browns who were looking to make their land west of the river the county seat. By 1823, with the Erie Canal still two years from completion, the village was officially renamed Rochester and held about 2,500 residents. Despite the growth over the previous decade, 
Rochester was still the size of a small village before the canal was completed and was chiefly a center of supplies for the surrounding farmland of the Genesee Valley. While the influx of newcomers from the east to Rochester were abundant, they were still manageable by the traditional methods of order imposed by the powerful land speculator families around Rochester. In 1827, 42% of the richest tenth of business owners were in business with other relatives, making it an incredibly high amount of insularity that Paul Johnson compares only to Salem, Massachusetts, where family-connected business ownership was equally as high. And all of these relatives webbed back to the land speculator families, who initially moved to the area and made their wealth off of the country trade in the area, such as the Browns and the Rochesters. Johnson tells of one Abelard Reynolds, who lived in Massachusetts and married into a wealthy family only to move out west looking for prospects that suited his newly upper-class status. Passing through the Genesee Valley only a couple of years after Nathaniel Rochester had moved there, he met the colonel, who used his political connections to secure Reynolds the coveted position of the postmaster of the village. As Rochester secured him the post, and Reynolds was unfamiliar with anyone else in the area, he remained loyal to the Rochester family throughout the rest of his life. With Rochester's own sons, he helped found the Masonic Lodge and sat as director of the Bank of Rochester when it was finally approved. Just like how the Browns lost the battle for having their land to be county seat, they also lost the first bank charter to the Rochester clan due to what looked like to them underhanded dealings. The Browns' mistrust of the Rochesters went back all the way to the Rochester elections of 1817, where they had allegedly exposed a plot by the Rochesters for control of the village government. In response to the uncovered plot, the Brown faction locked all Rochester allies out of the government, which gave them some power against the well-connected Rochester clan. At the heart of the Rochester-Brown feud was not just a difference in political connection, but also in religious affiliation as well. Bucktail Republicans tended to have many Episcopalian connections, the same denomination as George Washington and James Madison. The Episcopalian Church and its connections to the Anglican Church back in Britain demonstrated that its followers were typically wealthy, well-connected, and privileged in a way that was not typically relatable to most people, particularly in an area like Rochester. But being an Episcopalian wasn't the only way privileged elite demonstrated connections and loyalty to each other, which is why the Rochesters and Abelard Reynolds created the Masonic Lodge and the village together, since it was another exclusive club for the well-connected. The Brown faction tended to be Clintonian in political allegiance and Presbyterian in faith, hailing primarily from New England. Notably, the Brown faction were not members of Rochester's Masonic Lodge. The small frontier village was at the center of a southern gentry and New England culture war. The Browns and their allies controlled the government, but Rochester and his allies had the old money connections. The battle between government positions, village center, and the bank charter were heated, 
But as hundreds of people moved into Rochester on the Erie Canal, things started to get out of hand by 1826. A few years earlier, a brick mason by the name of William Morgan was one of the many who migrated to Rochester to help build the village's iconic aqueduct that flowed over the Genesee River. While there, he joined Rochester's Masonic Lodge for a time, but Morgan was never able to provide the proof that he was accepted as a Freemason before moving to Rochester, and some began to doubt the authenticity of his claims. How true this was can't be known for sure, because the Freemasons were a clicky group and some members could suddenly be frozen from advancement for seemingly no reason at all. This happened to a newspaper publisher from nearby Batavia, New York, named David Miller, who held a grudge against the order because they kept him from advancing within the organization. At First, Morgan was taken at his word at being a higher-level Freemason, and was accepted at a chapter in Leroy, and even helped start a lodge in Batavia. But Morgan felt betrayed when his name was left off of the chartering documents, and the Batavia Lodge refused to accept him. In response to this snub, in August of 1826, William Morgan threatened to write a tell-all book about Freemasonry, and rumblings within the fraternity began worrying about what to do about it. At first, not even the Brown faction printers would make an agreement with Morgan to publish the book, which he promised would reveal the strongest evidence of rottenness. But that's when Morgan ran into publisher David Miller from Batavia, who agreed to publish Morgan's story for 75% of the profit, which Morgan readily agreed to. As Morgan wrote his expose, he hid different pieces of it around Batavia so that it could not be stolen from him. But as August turned to September, the Freemasons were having organized meetings on what to do about the book. One resulted in a drunk attempt at destroying Miller's print shop, and at another point, a small fire was set there that did not catch. Other attempted arsons were claimed as well, but none were successful. And meanwhile, the Freemasons were able to get Miller and Morgan arrested for local debts, but Morgan was freed almost instantly. Morgan was immediately arrested again, on charges for stealing a shirt and a tie that he had allegedly borrowed and never returned. Then, the Freemasons went and bailed Morgan out of jail themselves, only to immediately kidnap him by throwing him in a coach. Morgan was reportedly last seen at Fort Niagara before he disappeared forever, never to fully release his book. At the same time, it was alleged that Morgan's wife and David Miller were captured and threatened, leading Morgan's wife to agree to give up the whereabouts of Morgan's documents. Miller was saved from the same fate as Morgan, allegedly due to friends who advocated on his behalf. Cries of murder led to the arrest of Freemasons involved in the abduction and the disappearance of Morgan, but the judge, who also was a Mason, acquitted the charges instantly. 
This caused the public outcry in the wake of this brazen kidnapping and alleged murder to grow only louder. So resounding was the cry that the perpetrators of the plot, along with the arresting sheriff, were all put on trial together again. One pamphlet on their trial points out that even as the Masons were imprisoned, waiting their trial, that the cells of the imprisoned conspirators are carpeted and furnished sumptuously. The pamphlet went on to say that the prosecutor in the case would be probing a malignant wound whose depth and direction he knows not and can only arrive at by a slow and painful process and that Morgan was an ill-fated martyr to liberty who vowed that it was his sacred duty which he owed to his country to unveil the plots and intrigues of the order, which were, he said, equal to those of the Jesuits in cunning and duplicity. The Jesuits are a Roman Catholic order of priests that were highly unpopular in the Protestant-majority New York frontier. After this trial... All of the men pleaded guilty because their alibis were considerably weak. There were witnesses who observed Morgan's abduction. The charges against him were spurious, and the men themselves claimed they were with Morgan before he disappeared. They claimed that they merely offered him cash to leave the country, and that he left behind his wife and two-month-old baby when he did. But even though they pled guilty... Their sentences were short, ranging from a month to two years, with only 11 total men convicted out of the 54 who were accused. To those who saw the Freemasons as a shadowy cabal, this just confirmed their suspicions. The lack of justice led to a political movement that started the first third party of the United States, the Anti-Masonic Party. From what survived of Morgan's book was found a detailed account of a lodge opening ceremony which revealed that new members were made to swear an oath of loyalty, throwing into question every Mason's patriotism. The murder reached such a national fervor that the sitting president, John Quincy Adams, declared that he was not a Mason, nor would he ever become one. As Rochester was the village central to the controversy of Morgan's disappearance that occurred between Batavia, Canandaigua, and finally Fort Niagara, citizens began petitioning the legislature to look into Morgan's disappearance. However, Abelard Reynolds, Rochester's loyal friend and fellow Mason, staved off that attempt, and the Rochester sheriff and judge, who were also Masons, also showed little interest. So, when the village treasurer, who held that post for 11 terms without competition, joined the Rochester Morgan Committee, a special secret ballot was held during his next uncontested election, only to reveal that a Bucktail Mason write-in candidate had won his seat. It was these repeated outrages that fomented the anti-Masonic party and the Brown-allied factions of Rochester to seize on an opportunity to take power away from the Rochester family. 
The first thing they set out to do was to claim loudly and publicly that the Rochester family and their Mason allies have been using the Martin Van Buren's Bucktail Republican Party to receive special privileges for years, citing the county seat and the bank charter as examples. They made these claims even though DeWitt Clinton was himself a Freemason and a Brown ally. But the Browns released a beast they could not control. In the burgeoning village of Rochester, things soon got out of hand, and neither the Browns nor the Rochesters could hold on to political power like they used to. The year that Morgan was kidnapped, both families significantly lost elected positions under the anti-Masonic populism. Those that once identified as Bucktail Republicans switched parties to Democrats as no one would elect them otherwise. All the while, more and more unruly young working men gained a louder and stronger political voice, mostly in the anti-Masonic party. But even Jacksonian Democrats knew that they would not get far without catering to this overpoweringly new young male demographic. As the old land speculating families watched their village become overrun with rootless young journeymen, they saw some troubling issues. At the end of the day, the working men would go over to the lower class corner of the village while the established families remained in the part of town with homes suitable for lawyers, doctors, and business owners. After a hard day's work, the working class men would hit up a grocer for liquor, and that's when things would begin to get rowdy. Church leaders complained that the government could do something about it because they issue the number of licenses that distribute liquor, stop issuing the licenses, and there would be no more problems with drinking in the village. They complained that grocers were even selling alcohol on Sunday when the New England tradition was that no business or partying of any kind should be occurring on the Sabbath. The streets of Boston were nearly empty on Sundays, but in Rochester, nothing stopped, especially not the canal. And while Protestant churches and the working class were on the same team with regards to the anti-Masonic movement, the anti-Masonic party was dominated by the working class, and they were never going to limit the liquor licenses so rude by the church. And in an effort not to lose any seats, the Democrats even refused to limit the liquor licenses too, keeping the alcohol free-flowing cheaply anywhere in the village. Fights began breaking out in the middle of downtown, and canalers were growing bolder by the day as they cat-called decent women along the canal. And all of the upper class in Rochester knew that the center of urban debauchery was the dreaded theater, where actors were shouted over regularly and items thrown at them with, quote, hooting, howling, shouting, shrieking, and almost every other unseemly noise occurring each night until well past midnight, keeping up the whole village, and the anti-Masonic party leaders were directly profiting from it. Even when the license was revoked for the theater, it operated anyways, as the fine for operating without a license was less than the profit they made. The land speculator families and their network that had grown the area 
couldn't help but feel partially responsible for the increase in violence, crime, and prostitution in their once quiet little frontier village. Before the canal, people came to work in Rochester often lived with their employers, where they were expected to learn the right way to act. If a man took a worker into his home, it came with the expectation that the employer would give food, shelter, and protection. Likewise, if the employee did something wrong, even when he wasn't working, it would be a negative reflection on the head of the household, the employer. For years, Rochester was able to keep those whom the land speculator families deemed respectable while they kicked or iced out anyone who didn't act according to their expectations. But with the completion of the canal, businesses boomed to such new heights that employers no longer even had the time to meet all of their employees, let alone let them live with them. Nathaniel Rochester along with many other business owners around the village, hired large amounts of building crews to put up new property, and they knew that it was now these very men who were the source of the rising problems in the village. Other booming businesses like Miller's, Cooper's, and Shoemaker's were also running into the same problem. There were too many workers to keep control over, and tradition placed the responsibility on the employers. It was during this tension that the temperance movement was born as a solution to these problems. No longer could the business owners directly teach and guide their workers to be good citizens, but what they could do was work to eliminate what they determined was making them bad citizens, the alcohol. But how to stop the burgeoning working class from drinking was a bit like belling the cat, and standing on a temperance platform in Rochester was political suicide. Another, softer attempt was made by the master craftsmen in charge of their expansive workforce by setting no-drinking policies at work sites and having individual conversations about abstaining entirely with their employees. In order for this to work, employers began practicing what they preached by eliminating all of the alcohol in their own home. Before the population boom, these same business owners would not only drink, but would serve alcohol to their employees, sometimes on the job, but no more. Keeping the workplace sober helped employees be more efficient with their work. Yet, at the same time, they were also being worked harder than before. The sense of camaraderie that once could be found between employer and employee had been replaced with greater expectations to the point that some groups, like the Carpenters, went on strike for better treatment and got it. Suggestive private conversations around the topic of temperance quickly gave way as soon as the working men returned back to their side of the village and met up with a friend for a drink. What to do about the unruly situation within Rochester was even breaking apart the unity within the churches of Rochester. In Episcopalian churches, like that of Nathaniel Rochester's, arguments broke out over how close some of the members were becoming with the Presbyterians. 
One Presbyterian by the name of Elder Josiah Bissell of the Third Church was a one-man crusader working to stop the sin in Rochester. Bissell prided himself on his piety and helped found the Monroe County Bible Society, the first organization in the United States to give Bibles to the poor in an attempt to ensure every person had a copy. In one famous story, Bissell promised to build a church for his congregation in exactly one week, and he succeeded. He funded the, quote, militant Rochester Observer, which promoted much of his Presbyterian agenda. One of his contemporaries described him as, quote, an active man, prosecuting everything he does with untiring zeal and energy, end quote. Bissell was even a member of the Morgan Committee in Rochester to look into the Freemasons. And to Bissell, the only thing worse than the overabundance of alcohol flowing through Rochester was the lack of observance of the Sabbath. As a New Englander, Bissell saw that the New York frontier did not regard Sunday as any different from the rest of the week, and he resolved to change that he organized a competing canal line called the Pioneer Line that was run by employees who abstained from alcohol and asked only for hot coffee at their stops. Even more, they would cease to work entirely on Sunday, the only line on the canal to do so. Established families, like the Rochester's, threw their support under Bissell's line as he cleverly partnered with a Masonic Episcopalian to run the business. Bissell and his allies then advocated for a boycott of any business that did not honor the Sabbath, which suddenly impacted a lot of wealthy local business owners. And when some canalers complained that they had to work because the mail needed to be delivered on Sunday, Bissell traveled to Washington personally to secure exclusive contracts for the Pioneer Line so that not even the mail would be distributed on Sunday. When Bissell was rebuffed, he still refused to give up, and he started a national campaign to end mail on Sunday, writing to other religious leaders around the country for support. But his effort was ultimately denied by the post office on grounds of separation between church and state. Bissell's pioneer line quickly became unpopular among much of the working and business class, especially competing canal lines. Flyers for the pioneer line were immediately torn down, and people looking for the line were pointed in the wrong direction. Slow-moving fights would take place along the canal by rival boats in front of the pioneer boats, by dumping dead animals into the canal, or casting adrift out-of-commission boats tied up along the canal to get in the way and slow down the pioneer line. Pioneer boats had their ropes cut, leaving them to drift away on multiple occasions. The problems with the Pioneer Line, coupled with the failure of his national campaign to stop the mail on Sunday, turned Bissell and his allies into the laughing stock of Rochester. And anyone who was foolish enough to openly support Bissell's Pioneer Line quickly lost their next election. 
Rochester was a secular town, and Bissell was increasingly seen as an extremist interested in coercive methods that did not sit well with most members of the community. But Bissell saw no compromising on what he felt was following the will of God. By 1829, Rochester was booming, with a total population of 9,000 people, making it a frontier destination. After gaining national attention by jumping into Niagara Falls, Sam Patch came to Rochester to jump from High Falls at an even greater height. At first, the spectacle didn't garner enough attention, so Patch promised to jump from an even higher height. Ultimately, Patch did not survive his 125-foot jump from High Falls, many claiming that he slipped and fell on his way down. But, for all the excitement Rochester was garnering, it was a low point for Josiah Bissell with their Pioneer Line failing, his No Sunday Mail campaign stopped, and the citizens of Rochester increasingly avoiding having anything to do with him at all. What was worse was that the church membership throughout all of Rochester was dropping while the working class clearly controlled the political landscape and issued more liquor licenses than ever before. Rochester was divided over class, the Sabbath, alcohol, masons, and even the local churches had succumbed to infighting. It was at this time, in this place, that Josiah Bissell wrote to Charles Grandison Finney, bemoaning the, quote, specimens of the large budget of evils rolling through our land and among us, and how it seemed that no one in Rochester could do anything about it. Bissell pleaded to Finney, quote, The people and the church say it cannot be helped. And why do they say this? Because the state of religion is so low. Because they know not the power of the gospel of Jesus. Through Christ Jesus strengthening us, we can do all things. And if so, it is time we were about it. End quote. As Finney worked his way up the canal in 1830 to answer Bissell's call, the old land speculator factions that were once so divided started to see that they may have more in common than they originally thought. And while many still had clear disagreements with each other, projects like Bissell's Pioneer Line indicated that at least in some cases, the old wealth was willing to cross religious and political lines with Episcopalian Masons and Presbyterian Anti-Masons working together. And with new church membership declining, even as the population was growing, debauchery reigned on the working class side of town. No doubt, these wealthy families that still regularly attended church saw what was happening in Rochester as a moral failing. Finney must have been highly anticipated by the upper classes of the village, like an outside consultant hired to fix things up in a way that in-house management just could not. It may be precisely because Finney was an outsider that many across the political and Christian spectrum were able to listen to him. And when Finney arrived in Rochester in September of 1830, he worked tirelessly from the start to change its culture. He began with his core base by preaching almost nightly at local Presbyterian churches 
and three times on Sunday with a strong focus on conversion. His tactics made conversion a public spectacle and used peer pressure to help convert the hesitant. At first, he began by getting church attendees to convert close family members, such as brothers, sisters, and spouses that were hesitant. Finney's secret weapon were women who made house calls to church-going women during the day when their church-absent husbands were at work to pressure them into getting their husband to convert. Many times, led by Finney's wife, Lydia, she and a group of local women would invite themselves into potential converts' homes and give out tracts, much in the same way people go door-to-door today to try and convert. While some no doubt saw this as pushy and inconvenient, to those who believed in Finney's mission, this was a matter of saving the soul. And slowly, people began to give in to the pressure. Johnson relays in A Shopkeeper's Millennium that a group of women once got a physician's wife to pester her busy husband so frequently that he joined the Brick Presbyterian Church. By using spouses and close family members, those who were on the fence were now pressured to join in a righteous community who saw themselves as the beacon of goodness for the lost souls of Rochester. And they were so persuasive that hundreds of, quote, young heads of families converted to join Finney's cause. And nearly all converted publicly, reinforcing the beliefs of Finney's followers that they were doing something special. Finney reinforced that belief, telling Rochesterians that, quote, If they were united all over the world, the millennium might be brought about in three months. End quote. Within a month, fighting within and between denominations was stopped, as Finney noted that, quote, Christians of every denomination generally seemed to make common cause and went to work with a will to pull sinners out of the fire. End quote. Nightly, Finney held group prayers with loyal evangelized followers and a few members possibly ready to convert as he preached with an emotional zeal that soon had impassioned members struck with the Holy Ghost and anxious members breaking down and confessing their allegiance to Christ. Finney likened each conversion to that of a mother giving birth, flush with similar pain and joy. It wasn't long before Finney packed churches for his sermons and mass conversion events took place with standing room only, and people would stay for an hour or longer after it was over to hear anything else that he might have to say. By New Year's Eve, Finney had Rochester spellbound. Finney knew how to capture an audience, according to Johnson, for, quote, When he gestured at the room, people ducked as if he were throwing things. In describing the fall of sinners, he pointed to the ceiling. And as he let his finger drop, people in the rear seats stood to watch the final entry into hell. Unquote. As the final moments of 1830 waned away, Finney's co-worker, Theodore Weld, spoke on the topic of temperance for four hours, providing the audience with a visual using his left and right hands. In his right hand lay a pit, and in his left hand, lay countless, as he called them, 
victims of drink. He began with the usual, what he called, runaway fathers, paupers, criminals, and maniacs, who most obviously had succumbed to drink, but carefully, over the course of his speech, demonstrated how even those who were well off and only imbibed occasionally were not spared from the pit of hell. Johnson relayed what happened next in a shopkeeper's millennium. Quote, Weld turned to the crowd and demanded that they not only abstain from drinking and encourage the reform of others, but that they unite to stamp it out. They must not drink or sell liquor, rent to a grog shop, sell grain to distillers, or patronize merchants who continue to trade in ardent spirits. They must, in short, utterly disengage from the traffic in liquor and use whatever power they had to make others do the same. A packed house stood silent. The Reverend Penny rose from his seat beside the Methodist and Baptist preachers and demanded that vendors in the audience stop selling liquor immediately. Eight or ten did so on the spot, and the wholesale grocers retired to hold a meeting of their own. The next day, Elijah and Albert Smith, Baptists who owned the largest grocery and provisions warehouse in the city, rolled their whiskey stock out onto the sidewalk while cheering Christians and awestruck sinners looked on. They smashed the barrels and let thousands of gallons of liquid poison run out onto Exchange Street. End quote. The New Year's Eve sermon began a trend in the city. Some wealthy citizens walked into grocers just to buy all the alcohol and destroy it, even going as far as pouring it directly into the Erie Canal. Some grocers, who were not within the world of Finney's revival, just stopped selling liquor because it was bad for business, and those who continued to sell it were refused advertising space within some of the local newspapers. And this was not a short-term effect. Pressure against those who sold alcohol remained for years afterwards, with one grocer liquidating his business due to the pressure put on him by the religious community. Finney was finally showing success where Josiah Bissell had failed. It seemed that Finney was able to marshal Rochester into moral submission in a way its own residents were just unable to do. But how truly successful Finney was at converting the city of Rochester remains a topic of debate, with some arguing that he transformed the whole region while others saying his impact was negligible. During Finney's stay, new churches began to be built, and months after he had left, another firebrand preacher who had been inspired by Finney, called Jedediah Burkhardt, led a whole new slew of conversions among the working class. Rochester's own preachers also continued the work started by Finney, but in A Shopkeeper's Millennium, Johnson points out that during the time of Finney's visit, many professions actually saw a decrease in church membership, and not only among working class, but even among shopkeepers and professional businessmen. Hotel keepers saw a decline in membership, and doctors and merchants only saw a moderate increase. 
Johnson points out that the greatest jump in church membership during Charles Finney's revival, quote, was strongest among entrepreneurs who bore direct responsibility for the disordered relations between classes, unquote. Namely, master craftsmen, such as master builders and master shoemakers, who could no longer provide shelter and guidance for all of their employees that now worked for them in the young city. In addition, forwarding merchants who employed the canalers and grocers who supplied them with liquor were among the greatest converts in the city. It was many of the same people who were directly connected to the original land speculator family networks that settled in Rochester. It appears that Finney had reminded the original family networks there was a tried-and-true method of ensuring proper order within the city. They became more sophisticated with their methods of support and denial, no doubt similar to the ways Freemasons decided who was and wasn't allowed to advance within their organization. The leading families funded and supported churches regardless of denomination, and the Rochester Savings Bank was founded by rich churchgoers in 1831 to provide loans to those they deemed worthy. The female charitable society, run by wealthy women, went door-to-door -door looking for poor children to educate them at their Christian schools. But it was just as easy to fall out of favor with the churchgoers. Johnson makes it clear that despite a large secular and temperate workforce to choose from, employers tended only to hire and promote churchgoers among the working class making social mobility difficult for those who did not fall in line with church membership. The success of Jedediah Burkhard among the working class after Finney was more than just the Holy Spirit reaching the masses. It was a matter of social advancement for those who were paying close enough attention. Johnson documents how individuals who joined their employer's church were able to find advancement while large number of those that didn't had their mobility hobbled. It was the same sort of connections that gave people like Abelard Reynolds advancement within the Rochester society before the completion of the canal and knowing who to please. Even those who had failed in their businesses, but were loyal members of the church, were far more likely to be bailed out by other church members while at the same time, they collectively worked together to ruin those who stood against their new social order. Johnson states that, quote, By dispensing and withholding patronage, Christian entrepreneurs regulated the membership of their own class, and to a large extent, the community as a whole. Conversion and abstinence from strong drink became crucial economic credentials. End quote. Something had changed in Rochester, and Finney was the catalyst for it. Rochester was a frontier town built on the ruins of Haudenosaunee lands, and the churches built there were as young as anyone else who had just arrived there from the east in the early 19th century. Therefore, churches didn't hold the same authority they did back east let alone back in Europe with roots that went back thousands of years. 
Most people who made their way to Rochester during the early years of the Erie Canal were young men looking to establish themselves independent of any oppressive authoritative body. And the land speculator families watched as the frontier village began to unravel with disorder. As Johnson writes, quote, Without ritual, without priest magicians, without divine imminence in an institutional church, Protestants face God across an infinite, lonely space. End quote. It was the business leaders then who were expected to maintain social order. And it was Finney who provided the ritual, the priest magicians, and the divine eminence to take back control of their young city. Finney admits to feeling something similar in his memoirs. And this is from Finney, quote, I had never, I believe, except in rare instances, until I went to Rochester, used as a means of promoting revivals what has since been called the anxious seat. From my own experience and observation, I had found that, with the higher classes especially, the greatest obstacle to be overcome was the fear of being known as anxious inquirers. They were too proud to take a position that would reveal them to others as anxious for their souls. When I had called them simply to stand up in public congregations, I found that this had a very good effect, and so far as it went, it answered the purpose for which it was intended. But, after all, I had felt for some time that something more was necessary to bring them out from among the masses of ungodly to a public renunciation of their sinful ways, and a public committal of themselves to God. At Rochester, if I recollect right, I first introduced this measure. This was years after the cry had been raised of new measures. A much larger number came forward than I expected, and among them was another prominent lady and several others of her acquaintance and belonging to the same circle of society came forward. This increased the interest among that class of people, and it was soon seen that the Lord was aiming at the conversion of the highest classes of society. My meetings soon became thronged with that class, the lawyers, physicians, merchants, and indeed all most intelligent people became more and more interested and more and more easily influenced. End quote. In 1834, business leaders from factions of anti-Masons, Masons, Bucktails, Episcopalians, and Presbyterians, who once so bitterly opposed one another, came together and formed the Rochester Whig Party. Rochester was just granted a city charter as the population soared past 13,500, and the first city elections were to be held in June. By this time, the fervor related to the murder of William Morgan had died down, and the anti-Masonic party had faltered on a national level, finding little to build on other than their mistrust of Freemasonry. Jacksonian Democrats were able to more easily pick up working-class votes by remaining anti-temperance and standing against the proscriptive and coercive measures that were now embraced by the Finney converted. But the Whig candidates found their chance to seize back power when a constable that was trying to stop a fight at a grocer's 
was kicked in the stomach and died from internal injuries. The Whig message in 1834 was clear. Alcohol was the cause of the problem and something needed to be done about it. And, as a true indicator of change in Rochester, this time they won by a small majority in every ward and supplied the first mayor of the city of Rochester, Jonathan Child, a Whig directly connected to the Finney revivals and husband of one of Nathaniel Rochester's daughters. The Whigs would not stay in power for long, though as once again they tried to put almost a full stop to new liquor licenses, putting the majority back in the hands of the Democrats. When they gained power to grant liquor licenses again rather than sign them into approval, Jonathan Child stepped down as mayor. But the Rochester Whigs would remain a political power with roots in the Finney revivals of 1830. The Whigs would always remain a wealthy business-connected party that were strong at the top of society and weak at the bottom. New York City Democrat James Gordon Bennett passed through Rochester and noted distastefully that, quote, There is a union between religion and politics in all this region of the country. And, of course, he naturally compared them to the worst thing that he could think of, saying, quote, This is a religion like the Jesuits. Johnson concludes A Shopkeeper's Millennium by noting that this marriage between religion and politics may be the setting event for the strength of evangelicalism in modern politics. Finney's revivals were revolutionary in that membership no longer depended on the Calvinist concept of predestination, which was the traditional view of Presbyterians. Instead, Evangelicalism claimed that each individual was an autonomous, moral entity who had the ability to choose whether or not to act with moral character and submit to the will of God. The business entrepreneurs who were feeling Presbyterian guilt for not being able to handle their workers in the traditional employer-employee fashion were given a new perspective by Finney who took the burden of responsibility of moral behavior off of their back and put it back onto each individual. Johnson concludes, quote, Evangelicalism was a middle-class solution to problems of class, legitimacy, and order generated in the early stages of manufacturing. Revivals provided entrepreneurs with a means of imposing new standards of work discipline and personal comportment upon themselves and the men who worked for them, and thus they functioned as powerful social controls. But there was more to it than that, for the belief that every man was spiritually free and self-governing enabled masters to present a relationship that denied human interdependence as the realization of Christian ideals. It was the moral dilemma of free labor and the political impasse that it created that prepared the ground for Charles Finney. Thus, a nascent industrial capitalism became attached to visions of a perfect moral order based on individual freedom and self-government and old relations of dependence, servility, and mutuality were defined as sinful and left behind. The revival was not a capitalist plot, but it certainly was a crucial step in the legitimation 
of free labor. End quote. Early Rochester was the archetype on how American business wedded itself to evangelicalism and broke from the collectivism that was traditionally associated with Christianity. In Rochester, the coveted Christian belief of taking care of the whole group gave way to individualism and rewarding those who followed the morals of business leaders for better or for worse. But not everyone in the New York frontier was willing to give up on American collectivism quite yet. listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.